Five, six, or maybe eight hours per day. Ukrainians are facing electricity cuts after Russian missiles hit the civilian infrastructure in the previous weeks. Russia's warships were damaged in Sevastopol by possibly drone strikes. In response, Russia left the grain acres, which might result in a new global food crisis. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. This is our weekly digest covering events in and around Ukraine from October 23rd to October 30th, 2022. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor at Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist, who is heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Tanya, let's discuss the key events uh, of this past week. And uh, let us share with our listeners uh, our very daily experience, the daily experience of being in blackouts in, in Kiev and in Kiev suburbs. We can face uh, electricity cuts for four, five, six hours um, almost every day. Uh, in the evening, really, when the dark comes down, on the city, the city is very, very dark. There is very little street lights. Um, it is sometimes a tricky thing to uh, to have a walk or to uh, to to drive a car. And uh, this is all the results of the Russians hitting Ukrainian civilian infrastructure and energy infrastructure in the in the past weeks. Yes, indeed, this might be the major, major events of the past week, these electricity cuts. We all Ukrainians live in the same situation. So for many hours during the day, you might have for four hours, six hours, eight hours, sometimes twice a day, we experience that as well. And uh, clearly enough, it influences the daily life of, uh, of Ukrainians because you never know exactly when it comes. So you can be cut off electricity for many hours and uh, you may be in a, in a lift, for example, and you'll be, you could be blocked there for a couple of hours because nothing could be done when you are there. You could be doing something. And uh, maybe let's explain that when there is no electricity, it also means that it might be no connection, no internet connection, no Wi-Fi, but also mobile internet is largely affected by these electricity cuts. Uh, because if you don't have the, the electricity in the in the region, so you will be n- unable to to communicate. And the one question I asked myself from at one moment we had the complete blackout. It was if uh, we could receive the information about air alerts when there is no t- no phone and no internet. My idea was that we w- would be cut off that uh, messages. But finally. 
uh, we discovered that this is a different system and at least we are informed about air alerts. So it means that let's, let's provide figures, exact numbers. According to official information, uh, from 30 to 40 percent of electricity installations in Ukraine, all over Ukraine, are partly damaged or destroyed by these recent strikes. And let's come back and explain that everything started on the 10th of October, so in a little bit more than two weeks, Russians were able to destroy such a huge amount of electricity supply in Ukraine. And it could become disastrous for, for the country because it influences life. People, when they get jobs, they don't know if there is any reason to go to work. For example, um, for example, you go to work and if your work depends on the electricity, you just uh, have to stay on your workplace, but you have no possibility to work. This week, I was having lectures at Kiev Mahil Academy and I was having seminars and I was unable to have no, no seminars and no lectures because the first day there were air alerts and according to new rules, we cannot uh, have uh, seminars even in Zoom if there is an air alert because uh, people have to, to, um, to go somewhere between two, two, two walls or in the, in the um, undergrounds. And the second day, there were no internet. So simply, it, it influences a lot to what we call education. And if we look at what is happening in schools, it's the same story. For kids who are not attending schools offline, who are staying online, if there is a blackout, it means that they are unable to continue their lessons, simply. That's it. Right. And um, as we are an ordinary Ukrainian family with three kids... Uh, for example, what does it mean to um, uh, to have kids in the kindergarten? For us, since the beginning of, of the Russian invasion, the, the question of kindergarten was quite a big question because, uh, of course, they were closed. Uh, and then the, it, was, it took months and months for them to reopen. And, for example, our kindergarten was not reopened in September when the, uh, when the school year has started, has restarted. It uh, tried to get opened in late September, and then there were missile strikes, so they, are, they were closed again. And uh, right now, for example, they again reopened, so they put uh, two little kids to the kindergarten. Uh, they have bomb shelters there, so it, it, uh, it, assumes, uh, it is assumed that they are protected there much more protected, by the way, than if they stay with us uh, in our multi-story apartment building, nine-floor apartment building. Uh, but uh, then there is electricity cut in the, in, the, in the kindergarten. That means that you cannot end the mobile connection cut and you cannot connect the, uh, the teachers of the kindergarten because they have no internet. They cannot write you a message, okay, come and, and pick up the kids. Uh, the kids are in the bomb shelter with no light. Uh, they can have some, you know little lights uh, on their own lighters <clears throat> but um, 
And the, the food is not being prepared. Yeah, because they, the oven, they, mostly of them, they have electric, uh, electric ovens. It means that they were unable to prepare the lunch. And there's a problem. So imagine your kid being in the bomb shelter in the complete darkness and without food. And there is an air alert. And you don't know exactly when the air alert will be over. So it could last, uh, it could last one hour, but it could also last for three hours or even five hours. So you're at home and you realize that you have no information about kids. Your kid, and if there is no electricity, it means that maybe your kid is without food. And if there is an air alert, you are you are sure that your kid is in the bomb shelter and even not sleeping correctly, not playing, etc. Right, and and then there is a uh, our elder kid, thirteen year old uh, girl. So we have three kids, and uh, one of them is already a school girl. Uh, and um, yeah, she went to school. And again, we can we have no connection with her. So uh, they went to the bomb shelter, and then our idea was to to pick her up. And then uh, we came to the school. I came to the school, and this was the end of the air alert. But still, no mobile connection in in the city. So the kid cannot call you and say, or not is not able even to send you an SMS and say, okay, everything is fine, we came back to, to the school, we continue the school. So um, we're telling you these stories uh, just for you to get an idea. Of course, this is, this, we, we perceive these stories with humor. Uh, we do not perceive it something dramatic because uh, fa- compared to many other things that Ukrainians are facing right now, that our soldiers are facing on the battleground, that people are facing on the occupied territories. This is absolutely nothing. This is just uh, little inconveniences in life. Uh, but uh, as we are going through these inconveniences, uh, we, we just give you this information for you to understand uh, what what is the life of an ordinary Ukrainian, even those Ukrainians who are not, uh, not shelled right now, not in the occupation, what this uh, massive attack on civilian infrastructure uh, actually brought. Yeah, just it it, it means that uh, the war for Ukrainians is everywhere, regardless if you're in Kiev or in Bakhmut. So uh, there is a direct influence on what's going on. But one thing I'd like to highlight here is that, um, for example, there were several cases during last week when I accompanied my daughter uh, to the to her dance classes, and her teacher was saying that even if there is a electricity card, there will be classes. Imagine you enter dance classes and you have a, a group of children, maybe 20 of them, and there is complete darkness, and they put uh, their mobiles in, in order to get some light, and they dance. And when I, I observed that, I uh, for me, it was an idea that still there's also a way of resistance. So for, for these teachers, for these trainers, they were also having music classes during the air alerts and during electricity cuts where they were trying to find a way to continue what we call normal life in a way that they will not be able to deprive us of, uh, of our normal life and of the kind of development for kids. Because if only you, all Ukrainians will concentrate exclusively on on the war they will be it's not an option so the option is to continue as far as you can a life you would call normal yeah and uh, our uh, another series in this podcast is called uh, thinking dark times and the dark times are really have literary meaning right now and sometimes we make podcasts uh, when electricity are cuts 
and uh, of course we we have the solutions because we bought accumulators quite quite a big number of uh, years ago a few years ago for other purposes we are buying right now uh, different lamps, different kind of lamps uh, that that will on accumulators uh, or on batteries. We are buying some uh, some other stuff. The kinds of internet is it is still a big problem because if the electricity is cut in a in a quarter in half of the city, well, most probably the um, the towers that send the mobile data, mobile connection are cut from the electricity too. So we still didn't figure out how to deal with that. Probably we should also buy Starlings, you know, as our soldiers. Um, that, that, that can be an interesting, an interesting thing. But uh, 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 looking, uh, looking around me, I can say that, looking around us, that uh, Ukrainians are trying to approach this problem creatively. Yeah. At, at the same time, let's look for the way out, how to deal with all that. So... Uh, up, uh, from 30 to 40 percent of the infrastructure is uh, damaged. Uh, the solution would be um, um, air defense, so more air defense for Ukraine, for these electricity installations, for major cities. This is one way. And another way, another consequence is that Ukraine was also been a, an exporter of, uh, of electricity abroad. Unfortunately, after all these events, it's it's not exporting anymore. And now we are trying to import electricity. There were some tests uh, this last last week, uh, specifically, the, they tried to, to test if there is possibility to import electricity, because the strikes will continue, that's quite clear, there will be no other possibility for Russians to stop to, 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 to try to, um, to, to destroy this Ukrainian resistance, they will continue their strikes. So our idea is to to, to, to defend, to protect these electricity installations once and to import electricity in a way that people will still have some electricity, at least a couple of, of hours per day, which is important for, for telephones, for, for mobiles, for all the systems. And uh, we are still having quite uh, mild weather. It's not really cold. In one month, it will be extremely cold and a lot of heating systems that depend on electricity. So if it's really cold, it will, it will lead to much, uh, much greater, much harder consequences. So let's turn to what's happening in this war. Uh, from our personal experience, let's let's now discuss what is happening on the front line. And it is it appears that the the weather is also benefiting right now, uh, maybe benefiting Ukrainians. At least it it uh, doesn't allow Russians to make any any big moves uh, with their newly mobilized uh, people. A new newly mobilized soldiers. It's extremely difficult to to move uh, during this weather, which is rather wet, and the the, the the land is not frozen. So we will see how it goes. But uh, a few days ago, I think it was uh, yesterday morning, right, when uh, there was a news that several warships in Sevastopol were damaged, and um, nobody still cannot explain what was the reason of that. Some say there was an attack of drones. Others are saying, and some media reports that they can be actually uh, drones by, but underwater drones, or how you call it, uh, you know, uh, some underwater submarines? boats or little submarines without without personnel, without uh, pilots there. So maybe this technology. 
we don't know exactly what happened and what are the results of it, but um, Russians took a very harsh decision. Uh, just afterwards, they left the grain deal. And that means probably that um, that these damages on the warships, and these are not just simple warships, they are warships that are sending missiles, like caliber missiles or some other missiles to to Ukraine. So the fact that they left the grain deal, I think it, se- it says that the consequences were quite serious for them. Yeah, let's see how it goes. So once again, we don't really know what uh, even the number, the, the, some sources say about four warships which were uh, damaged by these uh, strikes or explosions. Uh, what we know, we've seen several photos with the uh, with explosions, but no, it's not clear which ones were were hit by this by this uh, uh, explosions. And officially, what Ukrainians say, uh, they they recognize nothing. Once again, there is no no information about it was our strike or whatever you and that we are responsible for that. So no clear understanding understanding what's going on. And then there are some st- st- threats. This is not really. Uh, happening, so Russia is threatening uh, that it, it will leave this green uh, green deal. But what does it mean? So does it mean that they will attack Ukrainian boats transporting uh, Ukrainian cereals or whatever uh, whatever abroad? Does it mean that they they don't guarantee security? What does it exactly mean? We still don't know. This only only declarations because in order to attack. Uh, Ukrainian, if they attack uh, Ukrainian boats uh, with agricultural products, there will be, uh, I guess, there will be direct consequences. And another way, they uh, they still they have less warships, le- less uh, vessels now uh, compared to what they had used to have before. So it, it's not clear what does it really mean. So what will happen tomorrow? Does it mean that uh, uh, another boat coming from the port of Odessa somewhere to, to the African continent, it will be hit by by, by Russians or not? So what, what does it mean? Let's give a background that the grain deal was needed because Russians are actually controlling the Black Sea or they can hit the vessels in the Black Sea. And uh, Odessa ports, the three ports of, of Odessa, are actually playing a huge role in the exporting Ukrainian agricultural goods to all over the world. According to some ext- estimations, 400 million people to that or that extent depend or rely upon the Ukrainian food. Primarily, this is uh, African continent, Northern Africa, this is Middle East, this is a big, actually, parts of the country of the Mediterranean, but also the Southeast Asia. So, uh, interestingly enough, primarily those countries that are uh, that are skeptical with regard to the West or to the Ukrainian EU integration, and those countries that are uh, on whom Russia are trying to spread the, the, the propaganda. Uh, saying that, well, this is the war against the imperialist West or whatever else. So many of these countries actually rely upon Ukrainian food. And of course, Russians will be trying to say that this this is all Ukraine's fault because Ukrainians do not want to negotiate, do not want to end this war, and Russians want to, they say, want to end this war, etc. But uh, so there was a grain deal, and it was a tripartite uh, grain deal, allowing for vessels to go from Odessa ports uh, 
worldwide. Uh, and it was trilateral, a tripartite, because not, not trilateral, right? It was two bilateral agreements. Two separate, two separate agreements. agreements. Ukraine, right. Turkey, and Turkey, Russia. There was no agreement be- between Ukraine and Russia. But uh, let, me, let me add, so this is important. So if Russia violates these agreements, it would mean that it, violates, it would, will violate agreements with Turkey and with United Nations, right? So it's not about Ukraine. So because in their agreement, there is agreement only with Turkey and with United Nations. So if they imagine tomorrow they... They are hitting a ship, or whatever. Yeah, so they're trying to destroy it. So it will be it will be an aggression against against the violation of the agreement with Turkey, with NATO country, and with United. So, I I think this is not uh, uh, this was not play in, in the favor of Russian interests. So that's clear. But uh, at least they are trying to do so. And once again, uh, as far as we still don't know what happened, it could happen like uh, what. Let's come back to Crimea breach. We still don't know what happened, and there are a lot of versions of maybe it was some some Russian service, some Russian military who did that, and maybe it was their operation in order to reattack uh, Ukraine more intensively. So we still no no uh, clear and uh, definite understanding. It might happen that in Sebastopol it happened the same thing. So maybe some. Uh, some competing uh, units, military units, maybe are playing against Russia, inside Russia. We, we still don't know. So, and maybe this is this was done. Uh, maybe we don't know. We haven't seen the photos of the damaged ships. Maybe they are, are trying to create this picture of these vessels being destroyed. I'm just speculating, you know, because we don't have information. Maybe they they claim that there were some um, some warships, some some boats damaged. So now this is a, a reason for them to to start a real war in the Black Sea. So just to 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 leave these agreements about about grain, etc., etc. We still don't know. Maybe this is their their policy, right? But it's interesting because <clears throat> we all saying that. Look, Russians are trying to uh, force Ukraine, push Ukraine to negotiations. And there was a statement, I think, uh, by Mr. Medvedev or some other uh, person from the Russian establishment saying, okay, you should negotiate, otherwise we will keep on targeting, keep on hitting your uh, your energy infrastructure. But if what you're saying is true, is that Russians are hitting themselves, which are kind of don't, don't really know. believe... But if this is true, uh, that means, and they are withdrawing from the grain uh, grain deals, that would mean that they they want to push Ukraine into negotiations uh, and pursue their typical strategy of coercion to peace or coercion to talks. But while initially their coercion to talks was to make a big damage to the enemy and force it, force the enemy to talk, now they may be inflicting the damage on themselves and saying, okay, if you are hitting us, then they will leave the grain agreements. And so if this is true, that, that's a, that means that Russians are increasingly uh, increasingly weak. Yes, indeed, and they are increasingly weak, even if what we... Und- let's, let not, let's not underestimate what's going on the front line, because, uh, by the way, during this week, there was an official uh, announcement coming from Shoigu, 
Minister of Defense in Russia who said that uh, this partial mobilization is over. They were, it was successful. They, they succeeded to mobilize up to 300,000 people. So are they already ready? To, some of them up to 80,000 are already in Ukraine. So fighting in Ukraine. Others are preparing to fight in Ukraine. And in a way, would we see this slowdown of, of Ukrainian counter-offensive both in the east and the south? It could be also linked to the fact that these mobilized soldiers, uh, even if they are unexperienced, uh, whatever, but they are already uh, here in Ukraine and they were able to, to slow down this counter-offensive. So what uh, uh, we are waiting for, hard time, harder times, even harder times to come, because a Russian army is, is quite big one and they still have, let's not forget about that, they still have a huge, huge amount of artillery, artillery systems. They still have a lot of uh, weapons in, in numbers which is superior to what Ukrainians have. And there is no possibility for Ukrainians at that very moment to progress quickly, to, to repeat what we've had in, in, in Kharkiv region with these brilliant counter-offensive operations. We are not seeing the same thing in Kherson. Even if we understand that in Kherson, situation for Russians is, is, is very complicated, but still they will do what they can to defend to defend the city and to def because this is important for them. So, uh, in a way, Russia is weak, but let's not uh, overestimate uh, that. So, they, but still, they're still struggling, and they still have um, enough resources to continue this war. And what we have right now is um, decreasing information about what is happening on the front line. We know less and less, actually, from the official sources. It seems that both Ukrainian and Russian side want to cover this with fog, with smoke. Uh, but the figures, the figures that Ukrainians are spreading uh, are actually very big about Russian casualties. It's like 600 people per day, 700 people per day. As Ukrainians are saying, Russians, uh, six to 700 Russian soldiers uh, are killed per day. So uh, we might assume that on the Ukrainian side, the losses are also quite big. Uh, official, only official information from yesterday, coming from yesterday, 950. 950 Russian soldiers were killed, according to Ukrainian uh, official sources. It's huge. Yes. It's really huge, because even in the, in the, in the, in the very intense battles back in, in summer, and back in, in September when Ukrainians were counterattacking, I remember in Kharkiv or whatever, there were figures about 300, sometimes 400, but not 950. So it means that something is happening, but yes, indeed. Um, and uh, we, we feel that uh, we have quite quite a small amount of information on what's really, really happening in, in, in the front line. And Ukrainians, Ukrainian troops, Ukrainian commanders are trying to hide that. They have their reasons to do so, but for, for us civilians, this is extremely difficult to understand the logic of what's going on. So logic where, so if, they're, if Russians are attacking or retreating, if, if Ukrainians, on the contrary, are attacking or trying to liberate territories or they're retreating in a way. So a lot of uh, misunderstanding around Bakhmut these weeks. Bakhmut is maybe the only place on the whole front line where Russians were extremely, uh, uh, extremely strong and they were attacking and re-attacking for many, many, many months. 
Uh, we got some figures from last week say, stating that around 8,000 Russian soldiers lost their lives around near close to Bakhmut in this con- constant attacks against uh, Ukrainian fortified lines. So they, there was such an uh, such a intense effort to 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 break the line of defense. It they it was not successful, but still, as a city, Bakhmut is is suffering a lot because there are a lot of destructions. Destructions right now, and uh, as far as we understand, Russians are still trying to 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 attack in that uh, place. Let's talk about Russian propaganda because um, it is also showing some evolution. And uh, right now, in, over the past week, we have seen a new narrative coming in the Russian propaganda. Two major, two um, new narratives. The first narrative is that. Russians are really wanted, wanting to uh, to tell their population that this is a people's war, as they called, as Mr. Kiryanka, one of the uh, closest aide of Putin, said, "Narodne uh, vayna." Well, you can say people's war. How you can say else? Maybe national, national war, so, something like that. But that means that it is no longer a special military operation. So we are we have gone. We are gone with these rhetorics. The idea of special military operation was to say, okay, Russians are launching the war against Ukraine, but present it to the population as a something small, something, uh, something insignificant, and done by some professionals who will do the job for you. Now Russians understand that the, it is complete failure, and therefore they want to, uh, as the Soviet song was uh, was sung during the Second World War, "Stavai strana." right, to raise the big, huge country. And I think the mobilization was one of the reasons to do that. Um, but of course, it is, it is a big also absurd that some from the top is trying to inflict an idea that this is a popular war, that it is everybody's war. Because that means that people on the ground, grassroots people, do not really perceive it in that way. And of course, if you send people in the foreign country for no obvious reason, no obvious cause, and say this is a populist war or motherland's war, whatever, it doesn't, doesn't really mean that it will translate in the, in the convictions of these people and they will perceive it in that way. Yes, exactly. But at the same time, there are maybe two points. But first, first, uh, yeah, that's clear for us Ukrainians. It, it should be clear for Russians that if you are fighting in Kherson or close to Mykolaiv or whatever in Kharkiv, or, um, so this is not your your country. This is not your land. So it's difficult for to to, to perceive this war as as a defensive war because it's clear enough for you that right eight months ago it was Ukraine. It was a neighbor country. It was a different country. Why should you die? defending Kherson, or why should you die defending Mariupol, Bryansk? This is not your city. This should be clear. But the problem is that uh, I've heard uh, a couple of hours ago a very interesting interception of telephonic conversation between uh, two Russian soldiers. One of them was close in the Nikolaev direction, close to Kherson somewhere, and another was, if I'm not mistaken, in Russia. And that guy who was close to Nikolaev, he said, look, uh, commanders say we are retreating. Uh, I, I, I was not. Be- I, I, it was so hard for me to believe that. So now we are retreating. We lost so many soldiers here, so many friends. I lost so many people ho- here. 
I cannot imagine. We are retreating from here. From here. And what's next? His question is, what's next? We'll be retreating from Russia. So for them, there is all, already a connection between Mykolaiv, which is a foreign city for them. But if they spend a couple of weeks, a couple of months on this territory, they start thinking that this is Russia. You have add here that yeah, there was this annexation, referendums, fake fake referenda. But for 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 people who are already contributed in their lives to who are already dead for their for their uh, friends, it means that the, as if it was it were already Russia. So uh, this is a, an argument why this uh, this will be a huge mistake to make this war last. Because if the war lasts, so it mean it would mean that uh, thousands and dozens of thousands of Russian soldiers will be dying here, and their friends will be trying to defend their memory and to stay here. So this is very complicated thing. So and they will be able to present this war at the popular war because they will be defending. I don't know the community, whatever their the, the, their friends, their comrades, whatever. Because even if this not their land, but they are they come they were dead for this land. That's the reason why they will be defending. So the solution and the danger is that we should not make this war last for a long time. Because with time, Russians are very quickly consider territories which were never Russians. Russian, they start considering these territories as being really Russian. Yeah, and this is the story with Crimea, with Donetsk, with Luhansk, of course. Uh, eight years already in a de facto Russia or Russia's proxy that, of course, influences people. And in that way, time plays against Ukraine. So we, we we say quite often that time plays for Ukraine because we we are getting stronger with, with uh, Western weapons and with all the support which comes, comes coming from our partners. But at the same time, time plays against us, specifically in Crimea, because we have a whole generation, yeah, there were people, there were babies born back in 2014, they're going to school today, or people, or I don't know, school school children, which were, I don't know, 10 years old, at that moment, they're already adults right now, so, and all their life was in, in Russia, so they think like Russian, so time plays uh, against Ukraine, when it comes when it comes to occupation and this occupational policy of Russia, it's quite quick. So they are extremely, extremely uh, quick. So it comes as if it it was all the time Russian. Another narrative which is spread by the Russian propaganda recently is the narrative of desatanization, and, and uh, we have we have we have noticed it actually a few months ago. It was spread by some religious circles. And now it is spread on a much more official level. Desatanization for the Orthodox population, Christian population, deshaitanization for the Muslim population. And uh, this is this is all seems to be very ridiculous, but it, it shows us in which direction Russia is actually moving. It is moving in the direction of uh, religious fundamentalism, both Christian and uh, Muslim. And maybe for Buryas, there will be a Buddhist fundamentalism, we don't know. And uh, they initially, as you remember, presented this war as denazification. Now they went even farther, desatanization. So they, not only they're saying that Ukrainians are Nazis, but they're saying that Ukrainians are Satans, Satanists, 
people who believe in Saturn but not uh, not in God or whatever else. I'm sorry, but it makes uh, makes me laugh because these uh, these statements they were made at the Security Council in Russia. It wasn't made by some 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 church leaders, some spiritual leaders. It was a Security Council, and they were really using these words of desatanization and the shaitanization. So it was pronounced by Kadyrov. Kadyrov. So. Uh, as they imagine, they, they're trying to present Ukraine as being satanic, I don't know, satanic country. What what what, what exactly does it mean? So we don't understand, but, but really, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous, but at the same time, it might also serve as a, another vehicle to mobilize people, mobilize people for a kind of a sacred war, as as we might remember during these big concerts uh, when this annexation of territories was celebrated in Moscow, one uh, very known Russian actor, Mr. Ochlobistin, was really saying on the stage things that are rather shamanic or something like that. So uh, they're really, I think, preparing very big parts of the population to this very medieval and uh, dark, uh, dark ideas that this is a religious war, sacred war. Actually, as as we said, as as we told to our European friends back in 2014, this is also a kind of orthodox jihad, orthodox, uh, orthodox jihad, orthodox um, shahidism, and therefore this is remarkable how. Uh, these Russian Iranian uh, Iranian alliances work. Yeah, but but like like with any other form of extremism, this is not, is, has nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with uh, orthodoxy, because this is not about this is not at all about about spiritual values, about about the good, about about. No, I don't the, think it's it has nothing to do with orthodoxy. Nothing. It has a lot of to do with Russian version of Christianity. Russian Orthodox Church, which is is a very macabre, and it's go, it was going in the in the past decades in in a very irrational, regressive. Yes, exactly. Uh, but this is nothing to do with with Christianity, with the spirit of Christianity, with well, all the values we we cherish in Christianity. This is about well, this, this is, is your Jesus. version of Christianity, and they have their version of Christianity. And the problem is that their version of Christianity is extremely inhumane and extremely regressive and uh, and many people believe in that so and they use religion as not as a force of emancipation or something like that or spiritual uh, spiritual improvement they use religion as antidote to the modernity they use religion as antidote to everything and the world around us against uh, against modernity against technology against rationalism against enlightenment etc so, so, so look this is the same difference as you have bit, 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 between uh, muslim religion and these radical islamic circles so yes so so we are uh, Quite aware of the fact that uh, that uh, Islam itself it has no such uh, aggressive, uh, aggressive and destructive messages. So this is about radicalization of uh, of religion, and which it, it really there is no no uh, clear link and no clear justification. This is they, they use Christianity and orthodoxy to create this uh, aggressive uh, way to aggressive war. The discussion is not about this. The, the point is that uh, uh, the religion, the way how they use the religion is actually radicalizes people. 
radicalizes them and uh, present them as a kind of a, they see the West, they see Ukraine as an absolute evil. And maybe we don't know whether it will be another simulacrum or it will really uh, kind of mobilize uh, people psychologically inside Russia. I actually don't don't really don't really believe that Russia can become a kind of a, a orthodox jihadist state as a kind of a new ISIS or something like that. But they want the, the leaders are really leading them to into this direction. They want Russia to become this kind of state and this kind of society, and we should just understand that that they are preparing as a kind of a. Russian Orthodox Wahhabism or Russian Orthodox uh, Al Qaeda, whatever. Maybe, maybe the next thing that uh, that um, they will do with this Wagnerist group is to make it kind of a, also a group of religious fanatics. This is how the Chechens, the Kadyrovs, are actually acting uh, on the ground in Ukraine. If you see their videos, they're really acting as jihadists fighting for Putin, but with a very radical Islamic ideology. And I think the, this might translate itself into the, uh, into the Christian thing as well, into the Christian people and Orthodox people, whatever else. Well, the, let's see how it goes. So at that very moment, yes, indeed, there are some, such declarations, but uh, yeah, let's see how, how, which part of the population still can really believe in all this, uh, in all this nonsense. Yeah, let's let's see how it goes. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, and my co-host is Titana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote the majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and to help people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Follow us on social networks, on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.